Well, I don't know how everyone from our church is going at the moment, particularly in regard to family and other close relationships. But I do know for many people that lockdown has been hard and and there's a degree of strain that's in many households. Uh, It's not something that Christians are immune to, nor is it something that God is unaware of. Uh, and, And it can be very hard and he knows it and I know it and very painful And our passage today is certainly uh, a reminder of just how aware God is of some of the pain in families, but also that there can be hope in the midst of some of even the most desperate situations, hope that comes because God is at work and he is at work not just to save lives and just get people to heaven, but He's about changing people, about remaking us and enable us to start again. And and that changes the relationships around about us. Now, we're covering uh, quite a large chunk of Genesis today, four chapters, uh, the biggest chunk we've done so far. Uh, But it's a gripping story. And and while we're dealing with so much of the Bible in one go, it's no mean feat. I guarantee that it's worth the effort and worth sticking with it. It's basically a story of betrayal. Joseph's brothers, jealous of him, sold him into slavery. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, There's a betrayal, but then there's reconciliation. On the second visit that they make, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and his family became known. It's the story of God at work, saving lives, bringing change. Now, we've covered the story of betrayal a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you're in uh, live church, face-to-face church, this is the week that uh, a couple of us were stuck in the mud at Wyangala Dam. But if you watched online, you got the whole thing. Uh, Joseph was his father's favourite son, the son of his favourite wife. He had two wives, uh, not a great situation, and two concubines as well, even worse situation. And Joseph was the son of Rachel, his favourite, And his 11 brothers were incredibly jealous of him. And how in their jealousy we saw how they threw him in a pit and were planning to leave him for dead or kill him. Uh, Reuben, the oldest brother, had begged them not to kill him. And so Judah decided that he could make a profit and sell him uh, into slavery instead. And so slavers came past and he traded him away. It's a horrible story of terribly dysfunctional family and of broken relationships. And last week we, we followed Joseph's roller coaster ride from, from uh, slavery to jail and, and then his rise to power in Egypt. He's become the second most important man in Egypt. And yet in desperate there's desperate circumstances now that are going to mean that Joseph and his brothers are going to be forced back together and so much so that their lives will be in his hands and they'll have great reason to fear, I mean, what what will happen to them? And yet by chapter 45, they'll be on wonderfully intimate terms with the crisis that threatened their lives averted and the brothers are rejoicing in what happens and even dad who thought his son was dead and, and fears the lives of his other sons will come and be reunited under Joseph's protection. And you can read it as just this wonderful story of reconciliation between human beings. And even as I was praying about today, I knew there'd be very likely people who are hearing this who who are on bad terms at the moment with somebody else, Uh, maybe even being cut off, betrayed, maybe even by a family member. 
Or maybe there's someone at church who you do your best to avoid and, and get out before you have to encounter them. Uh, you, you might well have relationships that are broken down and that are in need of reconciliation. And, and here is a, a few chapters and many lessons about the beauty of reconciliation between once brothers, now enemies, yet become brothers again. But it's not enough to understand it purely on the, the horizontal level. Because in other ways, it's a story of reconciliation between the evil brothers and God, uh, particularly demonstrated by Judah, the very brother who sold Joseph out, whose horrible evil we skipped over in in-person church the other day, but we covered online, where he ended up leaving his family because of the guilt and shame that haunted him. Uh, he, and he ended up sinning against God worse and worse uh, as he married a Canaanite and then did evil in God's sight by betraying his daughter-in-law. And then he ended up, at the end, committing incest with her and getting her pregnant with twins. And then he's brought to his knees, uh, and not for the last time, when his rank hypocrisy is exposed. That's chapter 38. But, the, but at that point, he begins to be remade by God. And so it's clear throughout that the dealings of these chapters aren't simply between the brothers and an unknown Egyptian who turns out to be the one that they betrayed. Actually, they've got to deal with God for what they've done. And that comes through all the way in these chapters. Chapter 2, verse 28, they get caught out. Their hearts sank trembling. They turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? And over the page in chapter 43, verse 14, they're praying, may God Almighty cause the man, that is Joseph, they don't know that, but that man to be merciful to us. And then they recognise God's hand in what's happening. Chapter 43, verse 23, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must put the treasure in your bags. Or again in 44, verse 16, what can we say to my Lord, Judah replied, how can we plead, how can we justify ourselves God has exposed your servant's iniquity. And so in these chapters, even though they're dealing with Joseph in disguise as an Egyptian, actually it's all about their dealing with God. And and, and it turns out God is the one who blesses them. God is the one who finds them out. He's the one they've got to deal with. Ultimately, he is the one with whom they must be reconciled. And through it all, we see that all of it comes from the hand of God. This is the work that he does in people. It's God who saves his people. It's him who brings us to life. It's he who remakes them as he brings them to the knees and leads them to repentance and then remakes them. God alone does it all. And so we're going to see how all that unfolds. It begins with a tremendous crisis, one of the worst famines in all of history. And, and we've seen some bad ones in the last 30, 40 years in Ethiopia and, and uh, in North Africa. Uh, but this is, this is as bad as it gets. And, and it's one that's spread right across the north of Africa and up into the Middle East, across the known world. And, and we're taken back to this dysfunctional family that we've heard nothing of for several chapters now. Right, once they betrayed Joseph and we found out what happened to Judah, all we've been on is the story of Joseph. But chapter 2, verse 40, verse 1, 42, 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? 
in the midst of a crisis that's threatening their lives, what, what is it that the family are doing? All they can do is, is just sit there and try and outstare one another. You can imagine them saying, well, go on then. If you're so clever, why don't you find us some food? Verse 2, but listen, he went on. I've heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. Now, that's not a great situation for anyone to be in, to be facing death from starvation in the middle of a famine. But in the flow of Genesis, it is a particularly serious situation because these aren't just any people. These are God's chosen people. This is the family through whom he has promised to bless the world. And God has promised that he will bless Jacob, much as he promised he would bless Abraham, his grandfather. God promised Jacob, in fact, that his children will be numerous. But if they all die, it's going to look like either that God doesn't care or that he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. And so the stakes are, in fact, very high. God's integrity is on the line at this moment in this crisis. But Jacob knows that the only place that has food is Egypt. It's a country far to the southeast, a growing superpower in the region, someone to be feared. And so in desperation, what he does is send his boys to beg for food. And so they go. Well, 10 of them go. They leave the youngest one behind who's only in primary school. And as they turn up in this foreign land, caps in hand, sacks loaded with cash to offer, they're directed to see the guy who's in charge of the whole famine relief program, the prime minister of the country, who they have no idea is the very brother they have betrayed. Why don't they recognise him, you might ask? Well, he was a teenager back then when they got rid of him and now he's in his 30s. Uh, presumably they weren't expecting to see Joseph. They, they thought he'd probably died in the meantime. He, and he's also dressed up, I guess, in Egyptian royal robes, you know, kind of like this picture. And, and Joseph isn't going to uh, disabuse them. He's going to run with it. Verse 6, Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them, and we find out that he's even speaking to them later through an interpreter. He's Egyptian and pretending he can't understand them when he speaks Hebrew perfectly well. Now, if you've been following along with us in Genesis, you might remember the double dream that God gave Joseph back in chapter 37, the dream that all of his brothers would one day bow before him. And so we're meant to be paying attention. This is God at work fulfilling his plan. The brothers, they're completely clueless though. They've got no idea Joseph's alive. All they can think about is their stomachs and getting enough food so they can survive. But Joseph recognises them. And he's going to use this opportunity to test his brothers. Multiple times he's going to test them. They claim to be a group of honest people. Uh, Joseph claims they're spies, something Egypt would be absolutely looking out for at that moment as the growing superpower with the only food available across the whole region. They want to exploit the situation and who might knows who might come to see how heavily defended the, the storehouses are or what weaknesses there are in the defences. And so Joseph sets a test, a very simple one, 
42 verse 15, this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And so with this test, their integrity is in the balance. Uh, They might not be looking to steal, but they've claimed the high moral ground back in verse 11. We are honest men and not spies. And yet while they, it's true they might not be spies, they're honest in that regard, they're certainly not honest men. And Joseph's got pretty good inside knowledge about that. They'd planned to kill him. They'd thrown him down a well and waited. And then at the last minute, instead of killing him, they'd sold him to slavers. Uh, and then they lied to Reuben, the one who was going to let him out in the end. Then these honest brothers went home to their father and lied to his face. They, they told Joseph, uh, Dad, Jacob, that Joseph was dead because a wild animal attacked him and they, they, they even dipped his colourful robe, you know, the dad had given him as his favourite son. They dipped it in goat's blood and said, look, here's his blood. I mean, it's so sad. What's happened to him? That, that's how honest these guys are. And so Joseph has them thrown in prison for three days, no doubt to make them sweat, give them time to think. But 42 verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed, then you won't die. And they consider it. I mean, he's reduced the test. Before it was send one to get him and bring him back. Now it's send all of you but leave one here. And, and, and so they, they considered and, and the transformation that God is going to work begins. A change starts to take place. In the, in the first instance, they've become convicted of their sin. They're racked with guilt. They're haunted by the past. Verse 21, they, they said to each other, obviously, we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he was in that well, when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. And I think perhaps in a small way, they're getting for the first time in their lives something of the treatment that they had dished out to Joseph. Joseph was denied the life he should have had with his family, snatched from his father's care. Uh, Joseph cried out in distress and his father had all been, but been broken by the news of his son's death. And now in prison, the brothers remember. They remember their guilt. They remember their sin. They, it, it cuts to their heart like a knife. And, and really, I want to say that that is the only way that someone can be led to repentance in the end. That's always the first step of God convicting them of their sin. No one is going to repent and seek to be reconciled with anyone, let alone God, without recognising their own guilt in the breakdown. You, you can't move forward when you don't acknowledge the problem. The brothers finally know and admit that they're guilty. But they also know not just that they're guilty, but there's a reckoning to be had with God. Verse 22, but Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. 
They don't know that it's Joseph who's found them out, but they do know that God has, right? And they know there is a price that has to be paid for their sin. It's clear from verse 28 that they know God's involved and it's not just some sort of weird karma, oh, we did bad, so bad happens to us. No, God, God's the one who's done this. And as a result of the three days in jail and Reuben's confession, it's agreed that Simeon, the second oldest, is the one who's going to remain in custody. And Joseph just lays it out to his brothers. It's very simple. If you ever want to see Simeon alive again, then go home and you bring Benjamin to me, the younger brother that you spoke of. Now, remember that Benjamin, who's he in the, in the family? He, he was the youngest brother, but he's also the only other brother that had the same mother as Joseph, Rachel, his favourite wife. And with Joseph gone, guess who'd become dad's favourite now? The little young cute one, Benjamin. They'd hated the fact that Joseph was dad's pet and now they're saying, now he said, bring him back and I'll know that you're not lying if you bring dad's pet back to me. That's the test. Though at least that's the test he tells them about. But he actually gives them a second test that's unbeknownst to them because he has his steward who uh, load the packs, not just with the food that they've come to buy, but with all the silver that they had paid, he has them put that back into their bags. And so they've walked out with the bags of priceless food, but not having paid a cent. What, what will happen when they discover it? Are they going to come back? Are they going to hand it over? Are they going to fess up? Well, they get home and it's not long before the food runs out again and they're forced to return to Egypt. And they know they can't go back unless they bring Benjamin. But Jacob takes some convincing. He, you know, he is going to be at his wit's end and know that there is no other hope before he's going to allow that, but eventually he gives in. And so back they go for more food, this time with Benjamin. And not just with Benjamin in tow, but they also do fess up to the silver. They say, we don't know how God in our packs, but, but here he is, and they give it back. But they also bring new money to pay for the new food that they're going to bring home. And so things are looking promising. They really have begun to change. And again, the brothers bowed down to him as before in, in fulfilment of the dreams. And Joseph sees Benjamin and he's moved, but he has to keep up. This is his younger brother, the one he actually gets on with, but he keeps up the disguise. And so forty-three twenty-nine, when he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this the your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Well, God would be very gracious as we see how much the brothers really have been changed by God and how he's going to provide for them. Uh, Joseph organises for them all to have dinner at his house. They, they still haven't got a clue who he is. He's just the guy who pulls all the purse strings in Egypt. But at the meal... Joseph then goes out of his way to show favour to Benjamin. He's spoiling him just like Jacob had gone out of his way to show favour and to spoil Joseph. Uh, The meals are served and Benjamin is given five times as much food as the brothers. I don't know if you can imagine the conversation, the look on their faces as the food's brought around. Can you imagine them getting two lamb cutlets and a side dish of couscous? And then Benjamin's given 
not just two, but 10 lamb cutlets just stacked right up high. And not just a little side helping of the couscous, um, but he gets a whole bain-marie set in front of him. He can just scoff down. And remember, he's the little one. He, he's still a primary school kid. Why, why does he get all the food and we don't get to have seconds? That's what they could have said. The brothers had every reason to be green with envy again. And particularly since, remember, they're in a famine and food is the most precious commodity going around. It's the key commodity in all of this. Would history repeat itself? Well, amazingly, it doesn't seem to. Verse 34, they drank and became drunk with Joseph. They they get happy. It was party time. They're they're happy with the food they've received. They didn't turn on Benjamin. Well, chapter 44, Joseph decides to test them again and see if their behaviour really is genuine. All 11 of them are on their way back home with, with the new food. But Joseph instructs his steward, the same guy who planted the silver before, to to plant a special silver goblet in Benjamin's bag. And to keep up the disguise, he refers to it as his cup of divination. He's pretending to be, you know, this Egyptian who's sold out on pagan idolatry and put my cup of divination in his bag. And the brothers get a day or so out of Egypt when they're stopped by armed guards and they're questioned about the missing cup, the stolen cup from Joseph's house. And, and to them, it's completely inconceivable, and yes, I do know what that means, that any of them would have taken the cup of Pharaoh's right-hand man. Why, why would they do that? And they're so confident, they say in 44 and verse 9, if it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die, and the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves, my Lord's slaves. Another one of those stupid vows that people in the Old Testament always seem to make regularly. But it shows just how much they think that they are innocent of this crime. They didn't steal it. The sacks are unloaded. And to everyone's horror, Benjamin. Benjamin of all the brothers. Why Benjamin? Dad's favourite. He's found with the cup in his bag. What are the brothers going to do this time? I mean, they've said whoever finds it, he's got to die, right? And we're going to become slaves. They've got every opportunity this moment to, to denounce Benjamin, to hang him out to dry, especially as Joseph lets them all off the hook a little bit later. They, they, they sold out the last favourite. Would they do it again? He says, all of you can go free. I just want Benjamin as my servant and the rest of you can go home. Every opportunity to hang him out to dry. But Judah, of all the brothers that could have done it, he's the one that jumps up to Benjamin's aid, the very one who had betrayed Joseph, the very one who had walked out on his family and abandoned them and and sinned against the Lord, the one who'd done all those wicked things, the one who'd come to the end of his wits as he was exposed for his rank hypocrisy back in 38. He really is a changed man. And he, he delivers a long, eloquent, heartfelt appeal for the life of Benjamin. Here's just the end of it in chapter 44, verse 33, as he finishes off his appeal to Joseph. He says, Now please, 
let your servant, let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back to with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Do you see? The change in him, it's incredible. Here is a life completely turned around by God. Judah, Judah offers his life to Joseph. Here is a picture of the work that God does in someone. Judah is acutely aware of his sin. He's convicted of his guilt. He gets to the point where he knows he deserves judgment. He, and he gives up his life into the hands of Joseph in the end. Take everything that I have. Take my life from utterly selfish to completely selfless, offering a humble, generous sacrifice of himself for the life of his brother, who he's got every reason to despise because he's the new favourite. And he's concerned about dad's heart being broken. I mean, he didn't care last time when he just lied to his face and presented him with the coat dipped in blood and said, he's dead. Right? He didn't care then. Now he's like, I can't do this to dad. Well, that's enough for Joseph. There's no need to hold the disguise any longer. Time for the family reunion to begin. And I love the way that God plans out all the details of salvation. Unbeknownst to even his own people, he organised the events to save people, to bring life, to bring them to repentance and to remake and rebuild them from the ground up. God did it all, God alone. And to make it abundantly clear this is all of God's work, Joseph says it three times. There is no doubt. Verse 5 of chapter 45, Joseph's still trying to comfort his rather distressed brothers. I mean, he's just whipped off to the skies and they're gone. Oh, <laughs> what's going to happen now? They've got every reason to fear. But he says in verse 5, And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Or verse 7, second time he says it, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep your life by great deliverance. And just in case we're in any doubt, verse 8, therefore it was not you who sent me here. Well, they kind of did. They sold him. and you know, No, it wasn't you who sent me. It was God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over the land of Egypt. It is God. It is God alone who is responsible. It's fascinating, isn't it, that God uses the sinful actions and decisions, the jealousy of his brothers to bring all of this about. They intended evil, but God meant it for good. That's a lesson we're coming back to. In fact, that's how the book is going to end in chapter 50 on that very point, that that's what we're meant to be seeing all this, that God is the giver of life. And he, this is how he does it through every circumstance, every decision, every evil and good intention of people through you know, famine, through good times. God is working out his plans and purposes. This is how he saves. And this is the life that God gives. He works this and it's him alone. It's not a, a, a lot of God and a bit of me. It's not even mostly God and a tiny bit of me. It's not 
you, but God who preserved life. It is God who saved life. It is God who has worked these changes in you. And he will use everything at his disposal to do it. The sinful hearts and evil actions of the brothers, the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, the years that Joseph spent in jail, the positioning of his man Joseph in power at the time of greatest need uh, against all normal ways of someone coming into that station. It is God's work to save. And he saved not just to spare life, right? He's not just interested in people not going to hell. He's not just interested in saving them from a famine and dying there, right? He's doing it to change people. He brings dysfunctional rogues like the brothers, dysfunctional people like me, like all of us, into new right relationship. People all over the world to bring them to new life. And so have confidence in this God. Pray to him. The brothers pray to God. May God be gracious and turn that man's heart. Joseph says, may God deal graciously. He's the man of prayer in hand. Right? Put your life in God's hands. Right? God is in the business of changing people, remaking them. Right? That's the point of this part of the Bible, to show us God will do it. God will make a people of his very own. He does it by showing them their guilt, which is a hard thing to face, isn't it? To come to a point in your life where you say, you know what? I have mistreated God. I I've ignored him. I've left him out. I I might have even done great and terrible things that no one else knows about. You know what God knows. He does it by bringing us face to face with our past. He does it as he leads people to confession before him and admit it. He does it as he leads them to put their lives into the hands of his saviour, Jesus Christ who Joseph is but a shadow of and points us towards. He, he does it as he works amazing things and, and changes our hearts around. So I want to say, don't fight him. And don't think you can hide from God. He, he sees everything. Everything is obvious to him. We might not have a family member in disguise as an Egyptian to get us to realise that, But surely we can see from this one event in history, at least, that God does reign. God knows exactly what's happening. And so don't cover up the little things. Don't justify yourself for the little accusations when when there's one big accusation that God knows that you're guilty of, your need for him. And so come clean before God. No use pretending otherwise. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Saviour. And know the wonderful welcome of grace before God that's not deserved, it's not earned, but it is paid for, it's free, it's generous and abundant, paid for by him. Be reconciled to God. But also on a human level, if we want to see the lives of friends, these works are going to have to come, and maybe we can take our place in, in helping them work through their, their guilt before God, right? That they need him and that it's not good and that there's something to come, that there's an account, a reckoning, and lead them to grace. But also on another human level, while, while this is mostly about reconciliation with God, it's also about reconciliation between people as well. 
And the two so often go together in the scriptures. If, if there are relationships in your family that have gone toxic or are strained at the moment, or there's someone in the church family that you're not on speaking terms with or that you, you hurry by and, and rather not talk to, that you don't think well of, then, then let the blessing of reconciliation with our God in heaven be the flame for healing the wounds between brothers and sisters. It may mean taking some of the very same steps that these guys did to be sorry for your sin, to confess it, to turn from it and to act differently the next time you see that person, but also to be willing to show that person grace that doesn't wait to be paid for, but is an open-hearted desire for reconciliation. God's in the business of changing lives, of bringing people back to him and bringing them back to each other. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your mercy and wonderful running of history that you would work this work back in the old days between Joseph and his brothers, between them and you, that you brought these people back together. You brought them to their knees. You brought them to understand their guilt. You brought them to understand there's a reckoning to be had. But you also brought them to a point, place where they could receive your grace and mercy, what they didn't deserve. Father, we thank you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd help us not to be people who hide from you, but are open with you, who confess our sins to you and who want to be your people. Please change us. And we pray for families, our family maybe, the others that we know that are strained. Father, we pray that you would be so changing members of the family that they would have a heart for each other, that they would seek not to be selfish but to be selfless, to put themselves out like Judah did for his brother Benjamin. Father, help us to live in self-sacrifice to you and others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.